0: Let's pray, and uh, then we'll get back into the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we have been praising Father, Son, and Spirit already this morning, and we want to continue that now as we open your Word. Lord, uh, bless you, thank you, we adore you for both sending Jesus, your Son, into the world to live and die on the cross and be raised again, to ascend to the right hand of you, the Father, and, and to come again. Lord, all these promises are absolutely 100% true. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, for sending the Spirit, giving us the Spirit, who comforts us, who encourages us, who leads us along the path of righteousness, who gifts us. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for who you are and for all that you have done and continue to do for us We pray now your blessing over your word and that you would come and be our teacher and Lord, that um, we would not leave this place later today unchanged, but rather transformed further along the path of righteousness for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by introducing you to a new word, or at least it's a word that may not be familiar to many of us, and that's the word inclusio. Like inclusion, but without the N at the end. The word inclusio comes to us from the world of biblical studies, and an inclusio is a literary device. So when an author gives the same key word or the same key phrase or the same key idea both at the beginning and at the end of a literary unit we have an inclusio. one way to think of what an inclusio is is that it's like literary brackets or literary parentheses or literary bookends that occur both at the beginning and the end of a literary Unit. The brackets or the bookends serve to tie the unit together by use of the same keyword or key phrase or key concept. Now, why in the world am I starting the sermon like this? I'm starting this way because I want to show you a very important inclusio in the Bible that the theologian Michael Bird has recently pointed out. This is an inclusio that spans over the entire Bible, it's very relevant for our sermon today. So turn, please, to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is a verse that in sermons past we've spent considerable time with. Genesis 3.15 is God pronouncing his sentence on the serpent in the Garden of Eden just after the serpent had deceived Adam and Eve. So God is talking here. He's talking to the serpent, and God says, I will put enmity, or I will put hostility, between you, serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, that is between the serpent's offspring, and the woman's. Offspring. God would put hostility between the serpent's children or the serpent's allies down through the ages. Hostility between them and the woman's descendants and the woman's descendants would ultimately narrow down to focus on a single family member named Jesus of Nazareth. God says, he, singular, that is, he, the single offspring in Eve's lineage, he shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise the heel of this descendant in the lineage of Eve. Genesis 3.15 is the initial bracket or the initial bookend of our inclusio. Well, where's the second and the final bracket then? Please turn with me all the way to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, to the very last explicit mention in the Bible of the death of Jesus Christ, which is found in Revelation 12. So again, Genesis 3.15 had promised battle between the serpent and this single descendant in Eve's family tree, a battle that would culminate in the serpent's bruised or crushed head. Watch what happens in the second and final bookend of our inclusio. There is this dragon in Revelation 12 who is waging war against a woman who is about to give birth. The dragon stands ready to devour the newborn child the moment that the child is born. And the dragon, we notice in Revelation 12, 9, is identified with the serpent. The dragon of Revelation 12 is the serpent of Genesis 3. He is Satan. The serpent stands ready to devour this newborn child the moment he's born. What's happening here? Well, in simple terms, this is the revelation version of the Christmas story. The newborn child in danger of being devoured by the dragon is Jesus. Clearly he's Jesus from what's written about him in verse 5. And the serpent wants Jesus liquidated. The moment that Jesus comes into the world. Now, we could spend a lot of time in Revelation chapter 12, but we want to go to other places in the scriptures this morning. So for now, just notice in verse 9 briefly that we're told there of the throwdown of the dragon. The dragon's plans fail. The dragon does not devour the child. The dragon is instead thrown down or he is defeated. And then down in verse 11 we learn... That the method or the means of the serpent being overcome is by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the victory over the serpent comes by the cross. So do you see the inclusio, the bookends in our Bible? Genesis 3. Serpent, you will suffer the crushing of your head by someone in Eve's family tree. Revelation 12, the serpent gets KO'd, crushed, thrown down, overcome by the blood of the one descended in Eve's lineage, Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible is bookended then by the promise of the serpent's defeat at the beginning and the description of the serpent's defeat by the cross at the end. And friends, if we have these bookends in the Bible, what's implied then is that all the stuff in between the bookends is going to relate somehow to the bookends. And sure enough, it does. The Bible is full of skirmish after skirmish, battle after battle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, between those who are aligned with the devil and his designs versus those who are aligned with God and his designs. And all of it culminates in the climactic moment of the cross of Jesus Christ when Satan finally suffers there his death blow By the blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the Lamb. Well, pastor, as scripture progresses, where do we see this conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent? I'm so glad you asked. We see all over the place. We see it in the chapter that follows Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, when Cain who is aligned with the servant, kills his brother, Abel, seed of the woman. Already there in Genesis 4, it's on for Satan as he wants to exterminate the offspring of the woman. And then still in the book of Genesis, we see the battle raging between the serpent and his adherents versus the offspring of the woman when Esau seeks to kill his brother Jacob. And we see hints of the same conflict also when Joseph's brothers plot to put Joseph to death. And then as Exodus opens, we we see there the serpent is raging hard against the offspring of the woman when Pharaoh attempts to wipe out Hebrew babies. And then also later in Exodus when Pharaoh pursues madly the Hebrews into the sea and in in, in his raging attempt to try to kill them. Further, we see the conflict between the serpent and the seed of the woman in the moment when Israel finally takes possession of the land of Canaan and has to wage war against the serpent's offspring in order to take possession of the land. In the book of Judges, the war continues, skirmish after skirmish between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And then over in the book of Esther, there is an attempt to exterminate the Jewish people altogether. The serpent rages hard there in the book of Esther. And whenever we have in the pages of the Old Testament, whenever we have Ammon or Philistia or Assyria or Babylon warring against God's people in the pages of Scripture, we must see that that behind the, the, the sort of surface international conflict, behind that lurks the commander of such nations, the serpent, who is attempting to wipe out the seed of the woman. But now there's one skirmish in particular in the pages of the Old Testament that I want us to concentrate on just briefly here. And that's the skirmish between David, the offspring of the woman, and Goliath, the offspring of the serpent. And in what follows, I'm helped here in particular by Dennis Johnson in his book, Walking with Jesus Through His Word. The famous story of David and Goliath is found in 1 Samuel 17, Part of the point of the David and Goliath story is to show just how great the difference was between Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the second king of Israel. Saul, for his part, was paralyzed in fear, shaking in his boots as he faced the prospect of battling Goliath. Saul did not trust God for victory in the battle. But David, on the other hand, was submitted to God. David trusted God. David, in fact, was eager to face Goliath because of David's confidence in God. David wanted to be the one who would rescue God's people from the peril that they faced. And David killed Goliath by sinking a stone into Goliath's head and then David cut off Goliath's head. Goliath, seed of the serpent, ended up with his head crushed at the hands of David who trusted God for victory. Now over in Psalm 118, we have there a celebration of the victory that God provides for his anointed king. In Psalm 118.10, the anointed king shouts, All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. Sounds like David fighting Goliath, does it not? Didn't David say to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17.45 that he, David, came to Goliath in the name of the Lord? And here the psalmist, who could very well be David, he says three times in verses 10 through 12, in the name of the Lord I cut off nations. And he also says in Psalm 118.26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now didn't David also say when facing Goliath that the Lord will deliver you, Goliath, into my hands. And that the battle is the Lord's. Well the psalmist in Psalm 118 says in verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in Man, And he says in verses 13 through 16, The Lord helped me, and the Lord is my strength and song, and the Lord has become my salvation, and the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. What's amazing about Psalm 118 a psalm that sure seems like it's connected directly to the David and Goliath story when David gained victory over the seed of the serpent. What's interesting about Psalm 118 is that it's quoted, isn't it, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the donkey. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the people quote Psalm 118.26. In Matthew 21.9, the people proclaim, Hosanna to the son of who? David. And then they quote from Psalm 118.26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Could it be, friends, that the people shouting Psalm 118.26 in that moment knew the connection from Psalm 118, back to the David and Goliath story, and that now somehow, somehow, as Jesus, who they knew was descended from David, as Jesus strode into Jerusalem, maybe they were expecting Jesus to be the new David in their midst who would defeat the Goliath that they faced. The people saw Rome as their Goliath, Rome, who were occupying the land of Israel. Maybe they thought in that moment that this descendant of David had come at last to sink a stone into the forehead of Rome. But as Dennis Johnson says, however, listen to what he says. He says, these people on Palm Sunday did not recognize the evil opponent that the king was coming to defeat and destroy. Nor did they begin to perceive the personal price that the king would pay to secure his victory and his people's rescue. Friends, it was not Rome that was the problem that Jesus came to overcome. The problem was the devil, sin, and death. A problem which would only be overcome by Jesus shedding his blood, dying, and then being raised to life. Well, let's talk more about Jesus, my favorite subject. Jesus, who is the ultimate, climactic, singular, supreme seed of the woman and son of David. Let's talk about him and his battle with the greater Goliath, the serpent, his battle during his life on earth, a battle whose final showdown was the cross. The birth of Jesus into our world was an invasion. Did you know that? The birth of Jesus Christ, we're about to celebrate it at Christmas, was this. It was God- personally invading territory that had been unlawfully occupied by the serpent. And the serpent hated the fact of this invasion. And so immediately, right there at the birth of Jesus, the serpent sprang into war mode and attempted to devour the child with Revelation 12 in the background. Namely, the serpent moved Herod to issue that infamous edict that all children under two years of age should be murdered. The serpent worked behind Herod. The serpent wanted the baby Jesus dead. But the serpent failed. Amen? Amen. And so the serpent regrouped and he mounted a further battle campaign, this time in the wilderness, where he came and tempted Jesus. Strong temptations, we need to understand, were presented to Jesus with the aim of trying to knock Jesus off his mission, with the aim of trying to get Jesus to circumvent his mission. But the serpent failed again. At a later point, the serpent even got a hold of Peter tried to use Peter as an instrument to get Jesus to avoid his redemptive mission. In Matthew 16, 22, Peter rebukes Jesus. Never a good idea. Peter rebukes Jesus after Jesus declares that he will die in Jerusalem at the hands of men. Peter says, God forbid this will never happen to you, Jesus. Jesus. And then in verse 23, what happens? Jesus sees right through Peter to Satan, who was behind that suggestion. Jesus says in Peter's face, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. Serpent fails again. In the gospel accounts, we certainly see the serpent on the offensive working furiously to get Jesus off his mission, but we also see, friends, the counteroffensive. do we not? We see Jesus not just on the defensive, but we see him on the offensive winning battle after battle against a defensive Satan. In the very first sermon that Jesus preaches over at the Nazareth synagogue, he declares that one of the main aspects of his mission is to set at liberty those who are oppressed, Luke 4.18. Jesus is the new and better Moses. Come with an offensive posture to release slaves from their new Pharaoh, who is the devil. Jesus talks about this aspect of his mission in a place like John ten ten, where he names his opponent. In one corner, (laughs) we have Jesus. He names his opponent in John ten ten. He names the devil for what the devil is. Jesus calls the devil a thief. Did you know he's a thief? Rips people off all the time. He's a thief. And he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's the modus operandi of the serpent. But I, says Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's his mission, to give eternal, abundant life. And Jesus also talks of his mission against the serpent in a place like Luke 11, verses 21-21. And twenty-two. Now as we approach this Luke 11 text, I want to set it up by telling you that a current world record holder for largest biceps in the world is a guy named Mustafa Ishmael, whose biceps are, get this, they are a whopping 31 inches around. Now just to give you a contrast there, Arnold Schwarzenegger at his peak had 22-inch biceps. Now, as I was deep in preparation for this sermon, I took out a measuring tape in my office, and I measured my own biceps, (laughs) fully flexed, and unfortunately there's some flab included there. And they're a piddly 15 inches or so, so about half the size of the world record, so I have a ways to go. I'm working on it. Let's go to Luke 11, verse 21. Now, in the context in which this passage sits, we heard the Matthew version read earlier, but in the context, the strong man who Jesus mentions first is clearly Satan, the serpent, the devil. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, Guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now, for the sake of argument, we will attribute the massive 31-inch biceps to the strong man in verse 21. Nobody is getting into the palace of the guy with the 31-inch biceps who is also fully armed. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, when Satan with his 31-inch biceps, who also has rifles and pistols and knives at his disposal, when this strong man guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Ah, verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, what, Jesus? Jesus? You mean there's one stronger than Satan with the 31-inch biceps? Yes. Jesus has 100,000-inch biceps. In Jesus, we have to remember, is the power that brought the world into being, according to the book of Colossians. When one's stronger than the strong man, Attacks the strong man and overcomes him. The stronger one takes away the strong man's armor in which he trusted, takes Goliath's armor away, and divides the plunder, divides his spoil. Jesus is doing what here? He's talking about himself. He's talking about his mission, which was to come into occupied territory and overwhelm the strong man, Satan, and defeat Satan and plunder him. That's what he's talking about. And so watch Jesus on mission. As Jesus kicks off his ministry, he's preaching one day in the Capernaum synagogue. This is Mark chapter 1. And in that synagogue was a man who had an unclean spirit. The unclean spirit cried out. And it said something very interesting to Jesus. It said this. I can't do the voice. But who knows what What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> and then listen. Have you come to... Destroy us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Upon which Jesus drove out the unclean spirit. But notice what the unclean unclean spirit suspects or recognizes about Jesus. The spirit recognizes that destroying Satan's troops was part and parcel with the mission of Jesus to earth. And sure enough, in 1 John 3, 8, we have John telling us there that the reason Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. The new Pharaoh that enslaves human beings, the serpent, gets routed by Jesus Christ. In Luke 8, a man in the country of the Gerasenes is absolutely tormented by the serpent's helpers. The helpers or the demons that were afflicting the man begged Jesus not to drive them into the abyss. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does to the, listen, he does to the demons what God had done to the army of Pharaoh. When Pharaoh's army, those enslavers of Israel, when when Pharaoh's army had pursued Israel into the Red Sea. God brought Israel safely out of that predicament, but he closed the sea over the tormenting enslavers. The offspring of the serpent drowned there in the Red Sea, and the people of God were free. Jesus in Luke 8 drives the demons into a herd of pigs, And the pigs, with the demons in them, rush headlong into the sea. It's a new Red Sea. Headlong into the sea where they drown. And the man who was enslaved and tormented by the demons goes free. Jesus came, didn't he, to set at liberty those who were oppressed. Jesus leads a new exodus, doesn't he? He's the new and better Moses who comes to free people from their slavery under the serpent. Jesus is 100% successful in his skirmishes against the serpent. As the Apostle Peter preached in Acts 10.38, he reported that Jesus had healed how many who were oppressed by the devil? All who were oppressed by the devil. Yes, that's Peter's report of the unstoppable almighty power of the divine warrior, Jesus Christ, who has a perfect winning record against the serpent. But of course, the climactic moment of Jesus battling the serpent came during the hour of the cross. What we see in Scripture is that as the moment of the cross loomed near, the serpent marshaled all his might and power against Jesus. The serpent moved in, all his aircraft carriers, his tanks, his gunships, his rockets, as the cross drew near. And we see this especially in Luke 22. Turn to Luke 22. And listen in this chapter for the marshalling of Satan's full arsenal of weaponry here in this chapter. So in verse 2, we have... The religious types plotting to kill Jesus. Sounds like Satan's work there. And then in the very next verse, verse 3, we're told explicitly that Satan entered Judas, compelled Judas to betray Jesus. Down in verse 31, Jesus lets Peter know that Satan had demanded to sift Peter like wheat. So there's another mention of Satan's presence in Luke 22. And then in verses 40 and 46, twice Jesus warns his disciples not to fall into temptation. It seemed that the possibility of falling into the devil's temptation was especially real at that point just before the cross almost as if the devil's dark presence was becoming more and more palpable in this moment. And then in verse 44, of course, we have the famous moment in Gethsemane when the sweat of Jesus appeared as blood, perhaps brought on, at least in some measure, by the increased presence of the serpent. And down in verse 53, Jesus says to those who had come to arrest him, listen to what he says. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Notice that phrase. And the power of darkness. As if Jesus was making the observation there in Gethsemane that the power of darkness was more apparent than ever that it was now very clear to Jesus that Satan's gunships and rockets and tanks were there now staring him in the face in that moment. And then finally, verses 63 through 65, listen for Satan's fearsome artillery firing away here at Jesus. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they... Beat him. You hear the rage there of the Emmy? They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? (laughs) The ha-ha-ha is not inspired, by the way. (laughs) And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The level of satanic cruelty and evil was now peaking against Jesus. Now, commenting on verses 63 through 65, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, he asks this. He says, would you hate a man like Jesus? A man who has done no harm and no wrong to anybody at all? A man who was always going about doing good? Would you treat him like this? Would you not make a protest? Would you join the jeering, mocking throng? Would you spit on him? And then Lloyd-Jones says this. I say it is unnatural. Of course it is. It is hellish. It is the devil. It is evil incarnate. Yes. The serpent, you see, had marshaled all his hellish might against Jesus any hour just before the crucifixion. It was now the power of darkness that Jesus mentioned in verse 53. You know, we should never underestimate the power of the devil or dismiss his strength as if it were nothing there was a reason that Jesus himself called the devil the ruler of this world in John twelve thirty one and in John fourteen thirty and in John sixteen eleven. The ruler of this world. And there was ample reason why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians four four could call Satan the God of this world small g god, small g god very small g-god, the god of this world who does what? Who blinds, not the eyes, who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Satan or the serpent is no pushover. Listen, to be ruler or prince over the entire world means that you must have considerable power and ingenuity, and ability. To have all humanity under your enslaving thumb, all humanity under your enslaving thumb, means that you must have significant strength. And we should also notice Hebrews 2.14, which declares, doesn't it, that the devil held the power of death. In the days prior to the cross and resurrection, he held the power of death, no small thing. The devil tempted Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and death was the result in human experience. The devil then worked feverishly to enhance the presence of violence and death in the world, And even still today, the devil tries to use the fact of death to intimidate human beings, to scare them, to bind them, to cause all manners of anxiety. Well, here's a decent little summary of the enemy of our souls, the serpent, that is given by Donald MacLeod. He says this, the devil is a great mastermind, never forget that, A great mastermind implacable in hatred, unwearying in scheming, and terrifying in ferocity. Wherever there is evil, it is his work. Wherever there is good, it provokes him to fury. Sometimes he is as violent as a lion, sometimes as wily as a serpent, and sometimes as plausible as an angel of light. Friends, the menacing, dreadful enemy deployed his best, most powerful, fearsome weaponry in the moment of the cross. I imagine, in my mind's eye, I imagine Satan strategizing for this climactic battle, saying to himself, I will influence men to do evil. I will, arrange, I will arrange things so that men conspire together to arrest Jesus and put Jesus on trial. But I will make sure that the trial is marked by injustice because that's what I love. I will spend my strength on destroying Jesus. And I will get Rome on board with my purpose. I will let Rome crush Jesus by executing him on their cruel execution device, their cross. I have the power of death and I will polish up that weapon and use it here with all the force that I can muster. Now, friends, just in passing, I noticed this this week, fascinated me. Isn't it interesting that the Bible can tell us both that the devil plotted to get Jesus to avoid the cross, like when he entered Peter, He plotted to get Jesus to avoid the cross, but yet in other places it tells us clearly that in the end Satan worked ferociously to get Jesus nailed to the cross. I think perhaps the lesson here is for all his brilliance, Satan's purposes and plans are marked by confusion and disorder. I think that's part of what the scripture is teaching us. Which one was it, Satan? Well, it was both, but it's confused because he's the author of confusion. Enough about the devil and his plot. What went down at the cross of Jesus Christ? Here's what went down. See, what Satan didn't expect, listen, he didn't expect was that the unjust trial that he helped organize that led to Jesus on the cross, that was all used by God for the redemption and reconciliation and release of those who had been Satan's slaves. (laughs) See, when Satan zigs on the field, God does a capital Z cosmic zag. The serpent was beaten at his own game at the cross. We need to understand that. What the serpent failed to understand was that the vigorous, furious expending of his strongest power at the cross would be trounced by the weakness of God. (laughs) Yes? The serpent did his utmost, his weapons all arrayed, bombarding his target there at Calvary, but God in the powerless, weak death of his son, worked the greatest, strongest saving power that the world had ever seen that decimated the kingdom of Satan. The executed Jesus turned out to be the downfall of Satan. Satan defeat, the crushing of his head. What Satan thought... He thought that a bleeding Jesus would be his victim, Satan's victim. God knew that a bleeding Jesus would instead be God's victor. He's no victim. He's the victor as he hangs crucified on the cross. And what of the power of death that had been in Satan's hand? We said that Satan had that power of death in his hand. What happened with that? Well, the power, quite simply, was stripped there at the cross from Satan's hand, and Satan knew it. Satan knew that the power of death was hereby ripped out of his hands as Jesus hung on the cross. How did he know? He knew that death was no longer in his grasp as Jesus died because as Jesus died, says Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one and 52, there was an earthquake and listen what happened as Jesus is hanging on the cross. The tombs were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. As Darrell Johnson says of that section of Matthew, Matthew is declaring the power of the cross. The death of the Son of God was the death blow to Satan's rule of death. In the moment Jesus died, the grip of death was broken. Death could no longer hold its prisoners, and graves had to open. (laughs) As Peter Joshua has said, and I love this, he says, when death stung Jesus, it stung itself to death. Isn't that great? When death stung Jesus, it stung itself to death to death. In our baptism class today, we looked at John 8:51. Jesus says, oh, glory. He says, the person who keeps my word, he or she shall never see death. Fear of death taken away by Jesus. The fulfillment of the verse we started with today, Genesis 3.15, is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is where the serpent had his head crushed. Amen? Amen. The cross is where the serpent was reduced to nothing. The cross is where the power of the serpent was taken away. Where the ruler of this world was cast out. Where the kingdom of the serpent received its death blow. Where God's conquest over the enemy was took place, as Hebrews 2.14 has it. Listen to these glorious words. Through death, Jesus destroyed. Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We ought to be shouting. Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now on the way in here, it said Snowden Baptist on the sign, not Frigidaire Baptist. This is good news, friends. Now listen, over in Colossians 2, more glory. Over in Colossians 2, we learn that the enslaving power of the serpent, and I want you to hear this, the enslaving power of the serpent, his ability to accuse us, to hold us in his guilt-inducing power, that power was smashed irreparably at the cross of Jesus Christ. You need to know that. Colossians 2.14 speaks of God. Listen to what God has done. Canceled the record of debt. Canceled it that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin. The divine indictment that had been against us is removed, Christians. The blood of Jesus means that God no longer condemns the the, the repentant sinner. He no longer condemns the repentant sinner. And where God does not condemn, the serpent cannot accuse. Are you with me? Where God does not condemn, the serpent cannot accuse. And as Donald McLeod says further, where the serpent cannot accuse, he can no longer hold And men and women transfer their allegiance from Satan to the Son of God. Yes. Satan is a defanged, defeated foe because of the cross. As Colossians 2.15 goes on, it's the victory parade verse. He, that is God, he disarmed the rulers, took all their weapons away, and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Crosses where the serpent's head was crushed. And the rulership of the world has been taken back by Jesus. The risen Jesus Christ assures us in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen that how much authority in heaven and earth has been given to him? All, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says, The Apostle Paul assures us that the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus sits now at the right hand of God far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, that all things are under his feet, that he is the head over all things to the church. And Jesus further assures us, I love this verse too, Revelation 1.18, he assures us that it's him and not the devil who has the keys of death and Hades. If we're in him, we shall never see death again, according to John 8.51. Glorious promise. But we need to wrap this up. Here's the question. If the serpent has been overthrown and vanquished and defeated and trounced at the cross of Jesus Christ, as we have tried to show today, why is it that we still have to face the serpent's harassments and his oppressions today? How is it that Satan can still exercise his evil power in the world if he suffered defeat at the cross? Why would the Apostle Peter, writing well after the cross of Jesus, why would he feel the need to warn us that the defeated devil still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Why does Paul have to remind us, we live way after the cross, why does he have to remind us that we continue today to wrestle Against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil, if the devil's defeated? And the answer is the serpent, call him Satan, call him the devil, he is indeed defeated, but he has not yet conceded the defeat. He hasn't gotten on the phone to Jesus, who's won the election with all the votes. He hasn't gotten on the phone to concede his defeat. And so he continues to fight. The devil has indeed been overthrown at the cross, but the devil has not yet been put out, not yet been put out of existence altogether. That's coming. And so he continues to lob his evil grenades at the church, at us. To use John Piper's image, the devil is, listen to this, this is great. He's, he just, Piper says, the devil's like a dragon who's had his head cut off, but who nevertheless continues to thrash about. And the thrashing about can still cause damage in the final days before the, the dragon expires, ultimately. And that is surely coming, friends. You and I, I've used this image before, but we live in between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day, for the devil, was the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the cross and resurrection, the devil received a sound whipping and defeat. It signaled that the war was over and that Jesus had won. But the devil, in between D-Day, cross and resurrection, and V-Day, which is yet to come, the second coming, In between D-Day and V-Day, he continues to fight ferociously even though he knows he's lost the war. You and I are in a mop-up operation. So put on God's armor, Christian, and fight the good fight. Resist the devil, firm in your faith. Resist him and he will flee from you. Conquer the dragon, not by your own power, because you're not going to do it by your own power, but by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. And as you do, rejoice in two things. First, that the Goliath who had you paralyzed and enslaved, the serpent of old, has had his head crushed by David's greater son, Rejoice in that. And secondly, rejoice that according to Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, not even the devil's powers, and they're at work in our world today, not even the powers will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we walk by faith and not by sight. We thank you for the objective, true realities and promises that you have given in your word. Sometimes in this life we don't feel very victorious, but we know that the victory has already happened because of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that each of us this week would live into and out of that victory, that we would remember that the enemy of our souls is already defeated and vanquished by Jesus Christ, our King, and that you have given God your own armor for us to put on and don and wear as we fight the good fight, not in our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for being our captain and our king. Amen.